Well, good morning. Oh, that was great. Let's try that again. Good morning. Good morning. Whew. I don't know what, uh, what they were saying last night about this group not singing. Uh, you know, you guys are loud and alive. Hey, um, one, of the, one of the worst ways uh, from a pedagogical perspective is to distract your audience before you begin to, sp- begin to speak with a subject that's not related, but because the subject is so significant to all of us. I woke up this morning and, and uh, couldn't get 9-11 out of my head, um, and kind of 20-year anniversary, where we all were, uh, what that means to us as individuals, what that means to us as, uh, as a nation. So I just want to take a minute in, in remembrance for that and uh, ask you to join me in a word of prayer, and then, uh, you know, not in a <laughs> sacrilegious way, well, actually, we're going to move into that which is quite sacred uh, to talk about marriage, but uh, not to ignore just the impact of, of all that. So let's pray together. Uh, Father, I, I confess to you that my heart, uh, my heart's heavy in many, many ways, and and one of those is the remembrance right now of uh, of 9/11 and the the attack uh, that came on our nation, the attack that came on the liberty of the free world, uh, the attack that came from the enemy, not the one who's called uh, the deceiver, Satan himself. So, Father, we, uh, we ask that, uh, that you would uh, comfort those who are still grieving from personal loss, that you would comfort our nation, that you would guide our leaders, that you would take us into a new future, uh, not built on the ruins on that, but built on the foundation of the courage and the, uh, the integrity and the, the truth that was represented in, in all of our hearts and minds as, as we watched those events 20 years ago. So, Father, thank you for, uh, for the opportunity to be together in this room uh, to think through uh, who you are and what you have for us in, in regards to our own marriage and our marriage as a culture. Uh, take the words that we think, the words that we speak, and let them, uh, let them make a difference in our lives for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a different kind of talk for me to do. You'll see, you'll see actually on the headline there that's presented by Kurt and Rhonda. Rhonda and I usually present together, uh, and I was supposed to tell you this last night. Rhonda is not here. She is fine. In fact, she's doing great. Uh, but she is home with our daughter, Anna, waiting for a new granddaughter to come. This will be our seventh grandchild. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we did the same thing for the spring conference, and this was, uh, that was the product of that, Lady Agnes Joanna Hamner. Um, she was and is a delight. She's now three and a half months old, and uh, we get to see her again in, uh, in November at Thanksgiving where they come out from Pennsylvania. One of the things that, uh, that becomes so important for me is, is to stand here. I mean, Rhonda is the dynamic that brings life to when we speak. Uh, she is the one that, uh, that brings the, uh, the authenticity. She's, uh, Rhonda and I often talk about the fact that when we speak, I, I just kind of get out there and I speak and it, and it happens. And, you know, and, and, and I've got uh, kind of downloading what's inside my head. Rhonda downloads what's inside of her heart, and if you have watched and heard her, you, you know that that is true. And so as we, as, as we present now, uh, you're going to miss having Rhonda here if you've heard her before, not as much as I am, but I'm going to do my best, and you can report to her next time whether I did okay or not. 
So we were talking about the idea that this is a Christian marriage retreat. And if you are here, especially if you're in this room, you, this was called an optional seminar, as if everything else is an optional. Uh, but this is an optional workshop to be able to think through uh, in more specific ways. And so if you're here, you have some kind of an interest in the idea of what it means to have a Christian marriage. Uh, if you are here, you probably are very deeply committed to that idea of how do we take our marriage not only to make it Christian by title, but Christian by, a, by a, the very sense of how we live it and how we experience it together. Uh, Ed and Amy Yuzinski uh, were the speaker of the spring retreat, and they kind of capsulized some of what, uh, what Dave and Ann were saying last night of what we are here for and, and what the Hume Lake marriage retreats really are all about. And that is the idea that Jesus wants to use your marriage to turn you into something that you wouldn't turn yourself into. It's as we begin to think of that and, and, and that idea of what is it that Jesus wants to turn you into. Jesus wants to turn you into a disciple. A follower of Jesus, not just a Christian, not just the one that aligns yourself with Christian values, not just the one that says Christian marriage matters, not just the one that says, I go to a Christian church, but one who declares himself to be a follower of Jesus, of Nazareth. The one who, uh, who opened the door to heaven and opened the door to the kingdom of earth coming. And so when we think about what it, what it is in the mind of Jesus uh, to be a disciple of his, it begins with the, the phrase that Jesus used with those around him. Follow me. It was a typical kind of an invitation that a rabbi would give to, uh, to those that would, that would gather to hear his teaching. Uh, and Jesus was very explicit when he would look at someone and he would ask them, he would command them, he would say, you follow me. I don't know how many of you have been watching uh, the, the TV series, The Chosen, uh, if you haven't, you need, to, you need to go online, you need to look at it, you need to pursue it. it is a, it's a great uh, presentation of the, the gospel story of, of Jesus. But one of the things, that the character that plays Jesus just does a magnificent job. And, and, and as he does that, he does this idea of this declaration of this call of Jesus to discipleship. And, and, and it, is, it, is as though, it is as though Jesus is in your face. It is, this, it is this eye-to-eye, beautiful connection. And he says, you, follow me. At some point, Jesus has said that to you, and, and hopefully you have received that and accepted that and said, I'm in. I will follow you. That is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow him. It begins to get serious beyond that because the other thing that Jesus says is, if you will follow me, here's, here's the game plan. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. It begins to get very, very serious as he begins to call us in that way of what it might be to follow him, what it might be to relinquish who we are as an individual. One of our, one of our primary characteristics as, a, as Westerners, as Americans in the 21st century, is our individual identity. And there is a sense in which what Jesus call is to us is to deny ourselves, which is the last thing that you're going to hear on social media, the last thing that you're going to hear from the popular culture. It's the last thing too often that we even hear at our church, and that is the idea that we deny ourselves. It is, it is not the message that says, find fulfillment for yourself, find pleasure for yourself, but it is the idea of how do you deny yourself and follow me. 
And Jesus says, follow me that, uh, that you might accomplish my will. What is the will of Jesus in this world for us today? It is the idea that we would bring the kingdom of God to earth. Uh, Jesus said that in the, in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is not what affiliations you have. It is, it is the, the way that your life has changed by the power of the Holy Spirit to become like Jesus as you bring heaven to earth. And then Jesus said this. He said, as you follow me, learn of me. One of the messages that Jesus is talking about when he uses that phrase, learn of me, is learn what marriage is, which is quite interesting because Jesus talked very, very little about marriage. And yet he talked so much about what it looks like that your marriage would be used by God to bring God's kingdom to earth. Because as we think through that, as, as we think through what God has in mind, there is this sense that Jesus makes this promise to us. He says, the thief comes to only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. That you might have, well, what was the word that, that we were using last night? That you might have a life that flourishes. That you might have a marriage that flourishes, a family that flourishes. That you might experience life as it was created to be. That idea of flourishing relationships is the idea in the Old Testament of, of the word and the Hebrew word shalom. You know, we think of shalom as just being a, a sense of peace, that you might have peace. Well, that is part of it, but it's more than that. It is the, the idea that you might have the experience of peace that is, that is unique to one who follows Jesus. The, spirit, the experience of peace that brings you into that place of safety that you might be able to Trust him as you deny yourself and follow him. It's not to deny yourself and, and to just set yourself aside because it is the idea that says deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. It is what Jesus contributes as he comes into our life. He brings this sense of, uh, of fulfillment, of embellishing what we have experienced. So when we begin to think of that in, in regards to marriage, I want you to think about this question here. Uh, and maybe turn to your spouse and talk about it for just a minute. How will you characterize the starting point of your marriage? And so there's a number of different descriptors here. Uh, when you were getting, just getting married, when you made that decision that, uh, that we will spend our lives together, did it begin with that idea of infatuation? I mean, be honest. Go back to, to, to how much you really knew about each other. Was it just the idea that, man, I am so excited when I'm with you, I can't hardly think of anything else but you, and I am just passionate about you, and that's the driving force that's, that's moving me towards that sense of, of marriage? Or, or was it romance? Romance is that sense of welcome and wonder, as we've talked about often in here, and that is the sense that says, listen, you are so wonderful, and besides that, you welcome me into your life, and, and besides that, wouldn't it be great if we had a spectacular wedding, some $30,000, $50,000 that we invest into this wedding, uh, you know, so that we can have this beautiful romantic experience and this romantic honeymoon, and we're, we're so caught up in the romance of it. Or was it a whirlwind? All of a sudden, I mean, you met, you married, and it's seven days later, you're on your honeymoon. I mean, just this sense of, wow, it it's just has moved so fast. Or was it an arranged marriage, mom and dad? Uh, either culturally or in some way you were pressured into that idea and said, okay, uh, this is the only choice we've got. You're the one, and, uh, and I'm going that direction. Or were you just great friends and companions? 
Was it that idea that you, that you just said, you know what, I'm, I'm marrying my best friend? How many of you, no, I'm not going to ask you because I want you to talk together. Uh, were, were you just at that place and saying, who else would I spend the rest of my life with? My best friend or partners? Boy, for, for Ron and I, that was it. <clears throat> we had done ministry together. We saw ourselves on a very similar path. Uh, I mean, all of these other things were part of it, but boy, boy, we really knew that we were partners in ministry and life, and 44 years later, it has been confirmed. So just turn with your mate for just a minute and talk with them about uh, where did your relationship begin? All right, take about one minute more, one minute warning here. The idea of marriage from God's perspective began in the very beginning. It began in Genesis chapter 2 when God brings that first husband, that first wife, Adam and Eve together and joined them together for the rest of their lives, that they would find this sense of uh, passion, commitment, and intimacy that would drive them forward. And the whole concept of that is that God was bringing heaven to earth. God, God through all eternity, had lived in this uh, what we would call a, a love relationship, the community, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God had done that, and now that had been experienced in the heavenlies. Uh, don't think of it as a place uh, as much as an experience in that sense that that's God for all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this relationship in heaven, and God now creates the world and wants to bring heaven to earth. One of the primary descriptors of heaven is the idea that the glory of God is is never questioned. That the glory of God is what penetrates 
and exceeds beyond the boundaries, if there are boundaries of heaven. The glory of God is what, what just exudes out of this relationship of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as they come together. There's, there's, there's just this idea. We talk a lot uh, in recent days about the idea that, that, that our life is to glorify God. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means to let God, who He is, shine through us. That, 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 that sense of who God is exudes through us. It exudes through our marriage, through our family, through our church. Whatever it is that we do, in, in, whether, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That is the idea. And so it is the idea that at the very beginning, God brings heaven to earth, and He begins it in a place called Eden. And in Genesis chapter 2, we find that that is the orig origins of where marriage begins. And by finding that sense of the origins, we begin to find some of that definition, not in just what Adam and Eve's marriage is about, but what our marriage is about, and that is about the glory of God, bringing heaven to earth. Adam and Eve were, were called co-regents. They were to rule in Eden as husband and wife, as partners, co-reigning with God, with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they are co-reigning. They are to be the... The, uh, the human stewards of this place called Eden. That is what we have been called to. That is the origin of marriage. We have a responsibility, we have a stewardship to steward the glory of God. We find that not only does marriage begin uh, at the beginning of time in a garden, but it ends at the end of time in a garden as well. And that's the idea that in Revelation 22, we find the picture at the end of time where we're where God is now literally bringing heaven to earth. The idea of the, 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 the eternal and the temporal are coming, becoming enmeshed. The idea of uh, that which is immaterial and material come together as God brings the heaven to earth. And in that, it comes down from heaven as a garden, a city that's encompassed in this idea of a garden. And in that garden is, uh, like at the beginning of time, the tree of life. And it is that tree of life that becomes the model of what, uh, what God has for us, that we might live in that sense of an abundant life. And so it is that idea that not only are, were we created to glorify God, but our purpose throughout all time and experience is to bring glory to God, to honor Him and to reflect Him. The idea that uh, when, when we look in Genesis chapter 1, just as we're leading into Genesis chapter 2, as God is preparing to bring heaven to earth, He has created all of, all of the uh, material world, the cre creation around us, and He did it day by day. And the purpose that God is creating is to reveal His glory. In Revelation uh, 1.20, it says, it says that the invisible things about God are understood, are known by what He has created. You want to see the glory of God? Uh, Psalm 1, or 18.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then God says, let us make man in our image. And in the image of God, He made them male and female. He created them. And so the idea that God wants to reveal Himself as this kind of a God, a God that is, uh, that is encompassed in a sense of otherness. The idea of otherness is... is the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Otherness is the idea that says that they are in a relationship, but they are not the same, yet they are one. The, the concept of the Trinity just blows our minds. The mystery of the Trinity blows our minds. But if we can bring it down to that idea, we can begin to understand marriage 
by understanding a little bit of the Trinity. We probably will never get to the place of understanding the Trinity by, by moving from marriage in that direction. But if we understand what the Trinity is, we can understand the idea of what God has for our marriage. And so does that idea of otherness. Uh, a friend of ours, uh, Mike Mason, uh, wrote a book called The Mystery of Marriage. It's one of those deep dives into marriage. It's not one of those that you pick up and go, hey, we're going to do this for a Bible study, and you know, we're just going to all talk about what's the, the next thing that we can do to make our marriage a little bit better. I mean, it's a deep dive. But one of the things he talks about in that, in the sense of otherness about marriage, he says, when you marry, it's as though someone has planted a giant redwood tree in the middle of your living room. As they planted that redwood tree, you can't go from the bedroom to the bathroom, from the living room to the kitchen without navigating that redwood tree in the middle of your living room. That's what it's like to live in the otherness of the relationship of marriage. Once you enter into that marriage relationship, it is the idea that says, I always have to now consider this other person. Uh, Dave and Ann did such a marvelous job last night talking about how awkward that can get. And they did it in such a marvelous way because it was, it was that idea of awkwardness and beauty at the same time, wasn't it? I mean, it was just fantastic to see them do that. And, and so when we look at the, the persons of the Trinity, there is this deep sense of otherness. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The, the, you know, there's, there's no confusion of person, yet there's this deep sense of oneness and otherness. And so as we think through that, uh, the, these three areas are things that we will find in that tr relationship that we call the Trinity. There's a sense of passion that exists between the persons of the Trinity. We've talked about this in, in, in these seminars before, and that sense of passion we see in, uh, in the Father as He speaks of the Son. As Jesus, now the Son, has become incarnated on earth, and the Father speaks about Him at His baptism. Do you remember the words that He said? This is my beloved son. I'm crazy about him. At the transfiguration, the father, voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I'm crazy about him. The father is passionate about the son. That is the, the sense of this otherness and this beauty coming together as we talked about with Dave and Ann. So you, we see that. There, then there's the sense of Jesus is crazy about the father. He's passionate. In John 17, Jesus is, is praying just days before the crucifixion, the resurrection, and just weeks before he ascends back to heaven. In John 17, and he prays this, Father, I can hardly wait to return to heaven to, to experience the glory that we had before that first Christmas day. I'm so passionate about engaging with you again, Father, in, in, in a way that we haven't since that time. I, I don't even understand what that's like as the... The sun comes through, but there's this passionate relationship of beauty and otherness. And then Jesus, when he is, uh, just before that in, in John 17 and John 16, Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. What does he say? He says, the Holy Spirit, I'm going to send another who is like me, but he's different. He's other. He's other than me. And what does he say about the Holy Spirit? He says, when I send the Holy Spirit, the, other, the Holy Spirit will not speak about himself, but he'll speak about me. The Holy Spirit is passionate about Jesus. So when God creates us in His image, He creates us to reflect who He is as a three-in-one God. 
And he, he calls us to this idea that the two would become one in a mysterious way. That's why we talk about the mystery of marriage. In a mysterious way, this otherness is brought together to echo the image of who God is. So in that, our community, our children, our family, those around us begin to get a sense of who God is as they watch our marriage. Your marriage echoes the image of God. Your marriage mirrors the image of God. How clear is the echo? How crisp is the image that the people around you see, even in your own marriage as you reflect it with each other? The sense of passion, commitment, and intimacy. What does that look like for, for you as you reflect the image of God on earth? Well, let me give you a little bit of a sense of, of where we want to go with this. So that's a great framework to begin hanging on. It's a great theological framework. One of the things that Rhonda and I are convinced of is that our ministry, Between Two Trees, is, uh, is to provide practical tools for couples uh, to be able to engage each other, much like what Dave and Ann are doing in their, in their conversations with us. But for Between Two Trees, for Rhonda and I, one of the things that we're really committed to is helping couples to have deeper conversations about marriage, deeper conversations about your marriage. The idea that you understand the why of your marriage because, because it is said that once you understand the why and believe the why, almost any how will be easy to accomplish. No matter where you are in your, your marriage, that sense that if you know why God created you, why God brought you together to reveal His glory, to echo who God is as the Holy Trinity, a community of love, now that says... I'm willing to stay in this in the long haul. This is a big deal for me. I want to move forward as we, as we echo this idea of what it looks like. And so this idea of a, of a pattern of discipleship to grow your marriage on as you follow Jesus as husband and wife. So anybody, this may be a crazy question at Hume Lake, anybody in here uh, raisin or grape farmers or part of that industry? Okay, we got one back there. I mean, if you know anything about Hume Lake, Hume Lake was began by raisin farmers. If, you're, if you drive to Hume Lake, you can't, uh, you can't ignore the fact that you've got to drive through all the vineyards to get here. You, you, if you didn't see a vineyard, you weren't looking uh, as you drove here. They're all over the place. And so the idea of this sense of the vineyard, uh, if, if you observe it all, the vineyard has, the, the vines have been staked up onto this trellis so that, the, so that as the grapes grow, that they will not have to depend just on their own strength, but they can depend on the strength of a structure that has been put there for them. And then the fruit begin, is able to hang there. The fruit is able to be, to be harvested and picked. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, the, the old, uh, the monastic order began to talk about what they called a rule of life. Maybe you have heard some of this terminology around your church and some of the podcasts and, and books that you're reading, but the rule of life was the idea of a pattern or a structure to build your life around as you follow Jesus. Some of you have had um, some of those kinds of patterns. I mean, if you go back, uh, you've, you've probably gone through some workbooks, you've probably uh, gone through some discipleship training, some of those things that have given you a structure. So I want to give you a structure for your marriage to, to allow God to develop in your marriage that sense of a rule of life, creating a trellis for you to live your life and marriage on as you leave Hume Lake and you begin to think about 
what it is that God might have for you. And it begins here with that idea of an other orientation. You're married to someone other than you. Your marriage is not about you. It is about God's glory. It's about echoing together in that sense of otherness as you begin to move forward in that way. Um, your relationship is to be modeled on this framework of passion, commitment, and intimacy. So what does that look like? Let's unfold it. Let's begin with the idea of passion. What does passion look like in our relationship? Um, it's very easy, both with, with passion and intimacy in our culture, that is such a sexualized culture. Whenever you talk about a, a man and a woman in a passionate relationship, what do you think about? Sex. You talk about a man and a woman having intimacy, what do you think about? Sex. It's a good start, but it's only a start. Because the idea of passion is so much more than just the sexuality that exists between us as two others, both male and female, coming into this relationship. The idea of passion comes from the, uh, from the Latin pathos. Pathos is the idea of, of deep feelings. Having such deep feelings that you are carried away by your feelings. When we talked about the idea that maybe your marriage began... Uh, at that, just that passionate level. It is the idea that, you know, we were so far down the road by, by just the depth of our feelings, our emotions. Uh, the idea that we've talked about in here before, that when you fall in love, when you are passionately in love, your brain chemistry actually changes. You are drunk in love. And that has been carrying you along. And sometimes it carries us all the way to marriage. And we enter into marriage just based on that sense of passion, which is not bad. It's just different. It, it, there's a different story with every couple in this room, how it all began. But the idea of passion is so much more than just our emotions. Uh, the, the idea of passion, remember when we, when we celebrated last spring, we, we celebrated Easter, and it's called the passion season? I've always wondered, and, you know, particularly growing up, it was like, why is Easter the passion season? You know, especially if you're thinking, you know, sexually and, and, and you know, material. The, it is the idea that the emotion of it, the agony of the suffering of Christ, moves him along to the place, the crucifixion, and, the, and we all become engaged in that sense of the passion. It carries us to that place. So this idea of passion is is a, is a real focus on this sense of otherness. It. Uh, this sense of passion is what Dave and Ann were talking about last night. Two individuals with two separate ideas of how a parking place should be used. Of course, that parking place belongs to the person who needs to know Jesus or, or the guest. We, we're going to prioritize guest experience at our church. Therefore, those spaces closest to the, to the church are for our guests. Ann's running late, pulls into the parking place. Dave sees her. This is where otherness really takes some craziness. Anne's just trying to get to church on time to support her husband, to do what they have been doing in planting this church, to make sure that, uh, that, that they are getting their kids there on time. Anne's got this idea of where they're going, and it is this sense of otherness. She's passionate about it. Didn't she say that? Listen, I do everything around here. Uh, she, did you watch her face when she was going, I did the laundry? She was passionate. And this distinct sense of otherness. And here's Dave, 
glad handing, uh, no, welcoming all of the uh, all of the parishioners, making sure that these these first timers are welcomed, and he sees Ann pull in there. Is he passionate about that church? I'll tell you, if you've ever met a church planter, they're passionate about church. Dave and Ann are passionate about the church together, but Dave's just going, takes a deep breath, and the sense of passion begins to do what? Not draw them together. It was, not, it was not where they embraced each other in the glory of God. It was in which they embraced each other with their eyes, with daggers. This says, you're so other than me, you're so different than me, because they're not understanding their differences. Remember what they said is that, uh, that your differences are not necessarily bad. It's just how you handle them. Your differences actually reveal that sense of the passion that God created in you. You wouldn't be together, you wouldn't have a marriage if you didn't have this strong sense of otherness. And so your, your passion now begins to accentuate that. And it, it doesn't always look pretty, but again, it's at that place when two things. One, if Dave or Ann, either one, could have stopped and said, I love that that woman does everything around our house. She does the laundry, she feeds the kids, she does, takes care of the car, she does da 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 and, and all of a sudden, boy, he leans her direction and says, babe, I'm so glad you got a place up close here. Or Anne's looking at it, and she's just going, Dave, I, I, know, I know that this is for the visitors, and I love that about you. I love, the, I love your passion and that, and, and, it, and it draws them together. Or even better, when they come to the place in their kitchen table in front of their 13-year-old, and they bring a sense of resolution, and now there is something more beautiful from just the sense of their otherness. It is the sense of their otherness experiencing brokenness and being redeemed. That is the gospel. That is discipleship, allowing the redemptive work of Christ to enter into our lives and to bring that sense of celebrating our otherness. The next part of this trellis, this rule of life, is the idea of commitment. The commitment in our marriage is the idea of agency. It is a, the sense of, of giving a pledge, a promise, vows. It is volitional. It is not just taking my emotions, but it's taking my will and saying everything that I have and everything that I am, I am placing at your disposal. We are in this together. All of this we're putting into our heap together. We're not looking to how individual we are, but we're saying we're in this together for how long? For a lifetime. Did you notice last night how many times Dave and Ann came back to the place and they said, remember, we've been married 41 years. Longevity, lifelong longevity makes a difference to the perspective of everything that happens in your marriage. That is the promise that you made on your wedding day, for better, for worse, for richer or poor, till death we part. I've shared it in here before. Uh, the guy that did our wedding was a guy named Chuck Swindoll. And when Chuck was preaching our wedding, uh, Ron and I are standing there before him. And Chuck makes this comment. He says, he says, nothing is to end this relationship except death. And I'm, in my head, I'm going, yeah, of course. Then he takes his finger and he pokes it in my chest. And he says, you understand that, Kurt? <laughs> and then he looks at Ron and says the same thing. I'll never forget it. You know, some of you, some of you sitting here right now are at that place where you're on your second, maybe third, some of you maybe fourth marriages. And this is not a condemnation of anything that has come before today. 
This is just an encouragement that the marriage that we're talking about is the marriage that you're in now. The promises that you made in that marriage now create the safety for you, the safety that when, when your otherness begins to collide at a parking space with each other, or whatever the situation is for you, it's the idea that says, I'm safe enough to wait till we get to the kitchen table. No matter how angry I am, we're not walking away from this. We're going, we're going to stick in it, and we're going to learn what we need to learn. Those five points, whatever it takes, we're going to learn to get there because we're in this for life, and we have the safety and the security to move together in this in life. One of the great challenges of marriage today is that uh, the generations behind most of us and, and some of you in this room, uh, your peers at least are at this place. And that is the idea that marriage has become uh, not a foundation. The, the, the commitment is a sense of foundation that says, we're going to throw our lot in and we're going we're gonna to do this together. Uh, and so let's build our lives together, let's, let's build our careers together, let's build our home together, let's build our family together, and it becomes the cornerstone, the foundation. Today, for many, both inside and out of the church, young people, the, the idea is marriage is the capstone. Marriage is just adding one more thing to the beauty of my life. I've got my education, I've got my career started, I've got my uh, 401k, I've got, uh, I, I've got my own home, we're going to have to bring those two homes together. It, it becomes the idea that says it's just one more fulfillment of the accomplishments that I have done, and I'm going to cap that with marriage. Fortunately, when they get there, those who are Christians, those who believe what we're talking about here, get to the place and they say, even as a capstone, I'm in it for life. But I'll tell you what, it's so much more challenging because the otherness becomes so much more challenging because the otherness says, I've been spending my early adulthood building my life and I, I have not let anything get in the way. And now that we're married, if you get in the way, that's going to separate us. So don't get in the way. It is the idea of how can I fulfill your need or how can you fulfill my needs, not how can we fulfill each other's needs and move in that sense. This idea of commitment in the Old Testament is, uh, is described by the, the Hebrew word hesed. It is the idea that, uh, that God is a God of hesed, uh, loving kindness or everlasting love, or the idea in that is that God keeps His promises. When we echo who God is, we echo in our commitment that this is for a lifetime to get to that place. You know what? Because it takes a lifetime to be able to, uh, to, to bring in all of the energy that comes from our otherness, it takes a lifetime to get there. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. Malcolm uh, Gladrich uh, wrote a book in which he talked about the idea of, of that someone becomes an expert after they've invested 10,000 hours in whatever it is. Hey, listen, if you, if you want to be an expert at marriage, it's investing 10,000 hours into your marriage. The kinds of stuff that Dave and Ann talked about last night, the kinds of stuff that they'll continue to tell you. It's built on this foundation, but it's practicing those. And you can, you can begin calculating and say, well, how many 24-hour periods are that? That doesn't count. It's not the 24-hour period because you're not together that 24-hour period. It's the time that you're together. It's the time that your otherness bounces up against each other. It's the time that you're working intentionally to sense this idea of how do we become and bring God's kingdom to earth Third area is the idea of intimacy. 
And again, this is so easy for us to think of, of intimacy as just a sexual thing, and, and, and yet that becomes a, a good model for us to understand what that is, because in the idea of intimacy, the, uh, the, the Latin there is intimus. It is the idea of be, you know, being known, knowing and being known. Soren Kierkegaard, the Christian philosopher of the, of the 19th century, wrote this. He's, he, he was writing and, and he was talking about the idea that in that period uh, that, that there would be these great social events, these great masquerade balls. And at these masquerade balls, everybody would enter the ball masked. Boy, the last thing we want to hear, isn't it? Um, <laughs> this is like a decorative mask. So they would enter the masquerade uh, all masked so nobody knew how, who anybody was. That does sound a little bit like our culture. Uh, and, and so the, as Kierkegaard begins, continues talking about that, he says, don't be so foolish. Don't you know that the midnight hour is coming? Because at midnight, the clock strikes midnight, and everybody takes off their mask and reveals who they are. And he says, he says don't be a fool. Don't you know that the midnight hour is coming when everyone must remove their mask? That's your wedding day and every day after. And the truth of the matter is, that's why commitment really matters. Because commitment says, when I take off my mask and you see who I really am, you're still there. You're still committed. We're still in this together. And the idea that it, it takes 10,000 hours and more as I take off my mask and Rhonda sees my brokenness, Rhonda sees my hurt, she sees my insecurity, she sees my anger, she sees all of those elements about me. And I know because she is committed that she is there, but I know that, she, that it's safe for me to take off my mask. And we can genuinely move into that idea of what does it mean to be intimate, knowing that the midnight hours are coming. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the 9-11 of humanity. It's the 9-11 of, of uh, marriage. It is the idea that, uh, that as a Western culture, even looking back on that, we understand that, there, that we are in an accelerating free fall into secularism. Marriage is the first and greatest casualty of that because we see it begin in Genesis chapter 3 where the dark Lord, Satan himself, enters into this kingdom that God has, God bringing heaven to earth. Now this kingdom of darkness makes an attack on the kingdom of heaven that God has brought to earth. And, and as, as he does that, he begins to do what? He begins to attack what God has created. He begins to say what God has said is good is not good, and what God has said is not good is good. Remember that story? What did God say is not good? The man would be alone. The man would be in this as an individual. That he would be trekking out on his own. And I, I don't just mean the male, I mean the male and female. That it was, God said it's not good that the man would be alone. It's not good that a, a human person would be alone. But God brought the two of them together. It says, um, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become what? And then God said, what? It is very good. The enemy comes in, and what, what does he do? He seeks to destroy and to lie, and he comes to Adam and Eve, and what does he tell them? He tells them that you, can, you need to question God, that God even exists, that God even has any place in this kingdom, that this, this kingdom ought to be yours. You ought to be able to do whatever you want to do. And so this idea of secularism becomes this, this uh, Genesis 3 beginning. 
the idea that, uh, that we're separated from God and that there, or that there is no God. And so it begins to unfold as, as Satan takes them in that direction. And what does Satan do? He creates them where they pursue independence. And in that independence, in that individuality, let me back up because it's not independence. There's nothing wrong with independence. But in that individuality that Adam and Eve experienced by saying, I'm going to take the fruit, I'm going to... All of that that happens, what happens? They find that they now want to what? They want to go back to the masquerade. They want to cover themselves with a fig leaf. They want to hide from each other. They want to move away from intimacy, not towards intimacy. They want to recognize their otherness, not their oneness. And so God calls us into that. And as we, as we begin pursuing that as a culture, you may, have, may recognize this. Uh, if you haven't heard it, it's really surprising. Uh, just listen and you will. And that is the modern uh, critique paradigm. And that is the idea that we need to think through uh, in our faith and in social institutions how those have been constructed, how we deconstruct those, and then we reconstruct those. This is sociological thinking. And there's really there's, there's nothing wrong with this other than the way that it has been applied in our era. And, and, and because the, the truth is, let's take just marriage, we develop a mindset of what marriage is. We watch in our, I mean, David talked about it last night as he watched his dad. He began to construct an idea of how a man responds to his wife. All of those things as, as we're growing up. We're watching uh, movies. We're watching Disney, uh, Disney movies. We're watching uh, romance movies. We're watching adventure movies. And we're, we're looking at relationships and we're, we're constructing our picture of what marriage is. And then we get to the place that uh, we, we get married. And we begin to deconstruct it. And we begin to say, well, that's not really what it is. And it, it should be more like this. And you come to Hume Lake and we help you to deconstruct it and, and to figure out what's going on. And then the, the idea of this is how do we reform that? How do we come back to the construction? And that is where we run into problems because the, the idea of, of reconstruction becomes the idea that says, uh, I'm, I'm going to do this in accordance with the worldview in which I hold. And if we hold a worldview that is secular, that God doesn't matter, or that God really doesn't matter in my marriage, we hold a worldview that, that it's not about uh, the otherness, but it's about what I can accomplish in my life for my sake, for my pleasure, uh, what I can get out of this marriage. If that is how we re reconstruct it, we're not talking about a marriage that is a discipleship-oriented marriage, a Christian marriage, but we're talking about a marriage that's going to reflect the, the world and not where we are. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. You're very familiar with it, I'm sure. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's discipleship. Discipleship is not just a training model. It's a transformation model. If you are following in the way of Jesus, you are looking to have your life transformed. And it begins by, not, by evaluating the, uh, the framework in which you build your mindset of what marriage is and everything else that you're involved with. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the idea, not only the way that you think intellectually, but everything about you that you begin to renew that. It's part of why you're here. I mean, that's why you, you could have come to a lot of different retreats that have nothing to do with the Christian faith, nothing to do with discipleship. You're here because you're looking for something or your spouse has convinced you to be here because they're saying our marriage needs to be removed or needs to be renewed. And we are going to move in that direction. 
Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. What is God's will? God's will is that the kingdom of heaven come to earth in Eden and at the end of time and in your marriage. It looks a little bit like this. In Genesis chapter 2, we find God creates uh, relationships and for the very purpose of His glory. And in Revelation 22, at the end of time, we find that that is again revealed. But the truth is we live between that beginning and end. We live in the time between the beginning and the end. For us in our ministry, we call it between two trees, the tree of life in the beginning of time, the tree of life at the end of time. We live between the two trees and we're groaning. And we're saying marriage sucks. My marriage sucks. As a culture, we're saying marriage in general sucks. Uh, we're, the media is trying to convince us of that. We're groaning. We, we're at church, and our wife pulls into a parking lot, and we're welcoming people because we believe this church is really important. And we're groaning in the middle of that. We go back to our kitchen table, and we're groaning. In Romans, uh, Romans 8, it says this. It says, uh, Paul is talking about all of creation. When we look at all of creation around us, the brokenness of creation around us, Paul says this, the whole world, all of creation is groaning, waiting for the day of redemption. All of, us, all of creation began here in the garden. This is, this is what creation was meant to be. This is a place of flourishing. This is a place of safety that we can grow relationships. This is a place of safety where we can grow relationship with God. And at the end of time, we know that that's going to be restored because we, we know the work of Jesus on the cross. We know the promises of his return. We know that heaven is going to come to earth. But we're not here and we're not here. We're in the middle. We're between the two. And we're groaning. Can you hear it? Can you hear it in the marriages of your friends? Can you hear it in culture around us? I mean, if COVID is not a season of groaning, if 9-11 was not a season of groaning, Genesis 3 was not a season of groaning. For Rhonda and I, we've kind of gained a, a little bit of insight into that to, to take a little bit of transition and to move from that idea of, uh, of, of, of groaning to a sense of lament. Lament is still groaning. If you read through the, the scriptures, many of the Psalms are laments. God, this is screwy. Why is the world like this? Why is my enemy always after me? Why do I always have to live the broken side of life? Why is it so painful in my marriage? God, why, 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 why? How long will it be like this, God? That is lament. And yet at the same time, in that lament in the Psalms, or in those Psalms, is the lament that says it's not just the idea of of how bad it is and how hard it is in the groaning, but it is a sense of hope that is added to it. That is lament. I'm not going to encourage you to, get to, to try to alleviate all of the groaning in your life, but I am trying to encourage you to say there is hope. There is hope in the relationship that God created that he calls marriage, and now that brings, brings life to your relationship. C.S. Lewis, great statement here. For God is not merely mending not simply restoring a status quo, redeemed humanity is to be something more glorious than unfallen humanity. Lewis is saying, not just bringing this back to life, but taking us in our brokenness and redeeming it, restoring it, renewing it. And it's because of the passion, commitment, and intimacy that you promised on your wedding day that that can happen. And the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of pursuing the, 
the uh, discipleship relationship of Jesus. Andrew Peterson, a great songwriter that we appreciate, put it this way. And when the world is new again and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing. Maybe it's a better thing. Revelation 22. To be more than merely innocent, Genesis chapter 2, but to be broken, then redeemed by love. Maybe this old world is bent. Maybe it's broken, but it's waking up. It's waking up. I hope this morning when we go in for worship, you catch that flame that this, this world is bent, but we're, it's waking up. The beginning of this relationship that you have here and really understanding this sense of uh, who God has called you and made you to be. I'm going to move really, really quick now to some application for you, if I can get there. Now, let me go back to this. So this is the idea of... Uh, Echoing the image of who God is, His Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the passion that, that exists between them, the, the fidelity, the hesed, the intimacy that exists between them. This is the consummate love of God. 1 John, the letter that John writes in the, at the end of the New Testament, 1 John says this. He says, God is love. And that's not just this wild idea that's out here. It is the idea that God has for all eternity been in a love relationship. God is love. It's not God is trying to be love. God is trying to push love. It is that God is love. The consummate expression of what love is, is who God is. And so the sense for that for us is that, uh, that we allow the beat to go on. This is the sense of that the, that the heartbeat of God in the Garden of Eden that is echoed all the way to the end of time is the heartbeat that exists in your marriage. It's the metronome, metrochrome that, that, that you, if you're a piano, ever played piano as a kid, you know, the little metronome that's going back and forth like this and it's keeping beat. How do you keep beat? You're here. You're at this marriage conference. Things that you do matter. Let me give you just a quick sense of this. This is a, a model that we use uh, in, in our ministry. This is from Robert Sternberg. He talks about the idea of consummate love, and this is on the back side of uh, one of your sheets there. talks about the idea of consummate love. So that is the idea uh, that consummate love is the idea that all three sides of the triangle are, uh, are full. Uh, passion, commitment, and intimacy. I don't know why intimacy is not on there. But all three of those are strong in your marriage, and you're working on those, and you're building those as you evaluate them. <clears throat> On the right-hand side of that is non-love. There's no passion. There's no intimacy. There's no commitment. Romantic love is the idea that says, I'm very passionate. I'm carried away by my feelings for you, and I want to be intimacy, intimate with you. I want to know everything about you, and I want to be physically intimate with you, but there's no commitment. That is romantic love. Factuous love or the sense of infatuation is the sense that I'm passionate and I'm committed to you. Let's get married because we're we're so, uh, we're so in love, and yet you never go deeper. This is what you see in, in Hollywood. You know, a, a, a couple work on a, on a movie set together. Man, they've got great passion. It shows in the, in, on the screen. Uh, they decide to get married, but they're unwilling to be intimate with each other. Not sexually, but they're unwilling to take off the mask and be real. Um, infatuation is the idea of just passionate. There's nothing more to the relationship. Uh, 
Empty love is the one on the right-hand side, second from the bottom. This is, a, this is the idea that we have, lived, we have lived 30 years together. We've lived 25 years together, 40 years or five years together. And we're really committed. And I'm not going to walk away. But, man, the passion is gone. I mean, all I feel is how other you... I mean, what Dave and Ann expressed it so well last night. We're not going to walk out of this relationship, but I don't like this person. And if I don't like them, I'm not going to take my mask off of them. I'm not going to be intimate with them. That is the sense of, of what is called empty love. And then the last two uh, are companionate love. I would put those together different than the way that, uh, that Sternberg does it. And that is the idea that intimacy and commitment. It's a, the, the depth of a friendship that says, man, I'm taking my mask off with you. I know we're in this long haul together. So on the, on the front side of that sheet that you just went through, and again, I've gone very quickly through that. On the front side of that is a, just a very quick, easy inventory for you to do about your marriage today. On a scale of 1 to 10, and you read those definitions there, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you describe the passion that exists in your relationship? On a scale of 1 to 10, on the area of, uh, of, of commitment, where would you express your commitment to each other? Now, this is the hard work of commitment. That's not just saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to walk out. But what does that look like on a scale of 1 to 10? And then that area of intimacy. How willing are you to take your masks off of each other? This is an opportunity for you just to, just to get some perspective, a, a starting point to say, no, this is, this is where we are going to move from today to the future. Well, let me encourage you on, on to find some time today to do this little inventory, to have a conversation between the two of you. If this, all of this material is of interest to you, uh, some of it, we've got a book over here that Rhonda and I released a couple of years ago. Uh, they, folks, this is a deep dive. This is, this is a book that says, I really want to get into this idea of a theology of marriage from a, a psychological, theological, sociological perspective. Uh, I, I can say it's a great book because all I did is edit that. And, and there were 41 other writers that wrote it. And, and so, but it's a deep dive. If, if you're ready to say, hey, listen, I want to know, I want to be firm in that sense of why God created this marriage and how it works, uh, grab that. Second, if this is interest, interesting to you, I would encourage you to check out, coming up uh, later this fall, our second season of our Between Two Trees podcast. Um, it, We'll, we'll begin releasing that in, in uh, mid-November. <clears throat> it has been one of the funnest things that I have done in, in 40 years of ministry. And uh, what, what it is is I, I just get on the microphone across the table uh, from Christian Rowe, my partner, who's 26 years old, been married four and a half years, uh, and is just delightful. And we talk about what marriage looks like. And we're going to be releasing also the book a little short book uh, that's about, uh, it's about 50 pages that kind of expresses a lot of what we talked about and kind of takes you into a, a tool to use this pattern here. So um, if at any point, anytime, Rhonda and I in the ministry of Between Two Trees can, can minister to you, can minister to your church, um, that's why God has kept us on the earth in this old age, uh, you know, for us to be able to do that. Uh, and that's what we're committed to. And so uh, please know that. Please don't hesitate to contact us. Uh, let's connect here as well. And hopefully we'll see you at Spring Conference next year. Um, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, uh, 
so so much in this. Um, so now, as these couples get a chance to to just think about the the Holy Trinity and how their marriage reflects that community of love in the area of passion, commitment, and intimacy. Pray that you prepare their hearts and minds to hear Dave and Ann to take, uh, to, built on this foundation to say, here's some very practical ways to step into this today before you leave. Father, that the, the marriages that are broken here will be renewed. Marriages that are thriving uh, will go to that next step. And for the majority of us that are just kind of hanging out in our marriage, God, let us understand the depth of the transformation that you desire to do through our marriage for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.